The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. When the tool actually serves a, a true need that is going to remove something that is incredibly difficult or daunting or a task that a firm cannot actually bill for any longer, that's huge. The ones that excite me the most, they're the ones that give me the, the power of my data, okay. that extrapolate things out of my data. So the tool may actually say it's doing one thing, um, like I'll, I'll give you a quick example. The tool may say it's going to do automated time entry. Okay. I don't care about that. What I care about is how it's actually scanning everything that we do to extrapolate the data around all of our matters so that we could do it for pricing and for strategy in the future. Hello, I'm Kevin Poulter, and in today's episode, we're once again re-establishing those transatlantic relations as Joe Rosinski takes over the hot seat. He's speaking to Meredith Williams-Range, the Chief Knowledge and Client Value Officer for Sherman & Sterling. Meredith talks about her deeply personal reasons for seeking out a career in law and her lifetime pursuit for justice. Meredith takes us on a journey from small town America in Memphis, Tennessee, through to New York, where she now works for Sherman & Sterling following an incredible 50-person interview process. The Hearing all right, I am here with Meredith William Range, Chief Knowledge and Client Validation Officer at Sherman and Sterling. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's wonderful that we're having you. My goodness. So, we are currently in New York City, which is a long ways from where you grew up outside of Memphis, <laughs> a home of blues, soul, and rock and roll. Um, and if I if I mischaracterize this, please forgive me. <laughs> but I would love to hear the story how you went from. Two hours outside of Memphis in a farm, Farmville, so to speak, mm-hmm. to where you are today. <laughs> that needs like longer than a podcast. Okay. Uh, and, that, and that usually cocktails involved right. with some of that conversation. Uh, so it's so funny. Uh, my life today is so drastically different than than where I was raised and, and, and the town that I grew up in. So I was born and raised in Tiptonville, Tennessee, which is two hours north of Memphis. It's a town that's so tiny um, that at the time when I was when I was there, it had one stop and go light, not even a full stop wow. light. 1200 people <laughs> okay. total. Uh, I felt related to most of those. Sure. Uh, my, my dad having my dad coming from a very large, large family. And uh, so I was born into this world where it was a village. You were raised by a village. And it was very interesting uh, to have that where <laughs> you can't do anything without mom and dad finding out about it before you ever actually get home. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, my grandfather had a farm and we worked on the farm. My other grandfather had tons of vegetable gardens and such. Okay. So it was a place where we had meat that came from one farm and vegetables from the other. And we didn't go shopping for those types of things. And uh, yeah, I mean, I rode on dirt roads (laughs) and I had a dirt bike at the age of eight. How about the, did you work the tractor at all? I was not allowed to work okay. the tractor by myself, that. no. Okay. Um, I did learn how to drive on a lawnmower. Nice. So that should just tell you. Uh, <laughs> right. my, yeah, my, my parents still live on the two acres that they lived Wonderful. on when I was a little girl. And I had an older brother, and, and I still have a younger sister at this time. And, and we just, we it was a very simple, simple life. And I was very lucky, very blessed to be raised in a place where I had all my family around and and then have some very, very close friends. Now, how did I get out of that place? Um, because I still love that place. Yeah. I, 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 I go back there often. My, my almost six-year-old daughter loves to hang out and run around on the grass. So cool, right? <laughs> which, we, which we don't have in New York. Um, so my life took an interesting turn when I was 14. The day before I turned 15, um, my brother was killed in a car accident. Mm-hmm. 
And it was one of those situations to where um, it, he was the 10th person to pass away on the stretch of road where he had a car accident. Wow. And a lot of a lot of factors went into that. It was raining. There were a ton of different components to that. But my family felt at the time that we wanted to do something about that. And so it it became a lawsuit. And yeah. we sued the state not to get money because that was never the, the situation. It was to prevent others from experiencing some of the pain that we had experienced course, in going through that. Yeah. And so within about 60 days, the state had actually corrected that that error, which was fantastic. But the case went on for a decade, which a lot of times when you're dealing with municipalities that it can actually take a decade. So by the time it came fully through, I was a lawyer. Wow. So, so yeah, so it's very interesting. So what I got to witness during that time is how lawyers can actually really help people in need. Yes. um, And, and, and really be a guiding force for, for good. Right. Uh, I'm not saying that every lawyer is good because there's enough lawyer jokes to, to, <laughs> to definitely discredit that, but you get to witness that. And when you witness something that's that powerful, that can be that impactful, you kind of, you, you gravitate towards something like that. So I knew very early on that I wanted to go to law school. I just didn't know what kind of lawyer I wanted to be. And um, I, because of what was occurring in my life at the time, I couldn't go too far away. Okay. I needed to be still near yeah, my family to help by. help with my younger sister and to just, I wanted to be near my family because of, of so much that had occurred. And so I, I, I went to the University of Memphis and I love that school. It yeah. is such <laughs> a, a culture. It's a such a culturally diverse school. Um, I had the great opportunity to be in college at the same time or around the same time of like Penny Hardaway oh, wow. and Lorenzen Wright. And so basketball was such a, a huge thing. This was before the Memphis. Penny's Grizzlies. back. I know. Penny's it's back just, as it's, coach. It's <laughs> the full circle. That's so cool. And um, so I, I did. I loved Memphis. I, I did it quickly. I did undergrad in three and a half years. Wow. But I had a lot of things going on at the time. And my undergraduate, I love math. And so I went towards a business and accounting degree with that. So it's because math has an answer. Yes, but you're a masochist. <laughs> math is it so, has wow. an answer. It's okay. very black and white. Um, and actually debated at that time, do I want to be an auditor or do I actually want to oh, go wow. to law school? Okay. So I had, a, I had a brief moment where I actually considered that. And then I thought, you know, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I'm going to go to law school. And, um, and again, I, I love Memphis. I love the city of Memphis. It's so culturally diverse. I, the way I always explain it is it's such a gritty culture. Yeah. It has such rich history history, both good and bad, as every city does. But I, the food, the people, I just had the great opportunity to kind of mix and mingle with so many different individuals that taught me so much uh, of how to be a better human being throughout my existence there. And so I lived in Memphis for 16 years. Good for you. Okay. I love that place. I do. And I still miss it. My sister is is uh, in Memphis. And so we we'll, we fly in there when we're going right, to go visit yeah. the family. So yeah, so I ended up in Memphis and Ended up in undergrad there and, and then went on to law school. And then I went to work for Baker Donaldson as a young baby lawyer. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my background is, of course, in taxation and auditing and okay. M&A and tax implication right. work and stuff like that. And so I got to work at, at Baker for a long time. I, I was with Baker Donaldson for 18 years. Wow. Which is so strange to say out loud. Yeah. It makes me feel extremely old when no, I not, say not that. At all. But uh, but no, it was. 
I, I love that firm and I, I love the people of that firm. There's some really fantastic individuals. And um, I, I jokingly say this often, but I shared a, an assistant and a thermostat with Mr. Donaldson. Oh, really? <laughs> and when I first met him, I think he was 80. Okay. When I first started uh, practicing, and he passed away about a year and a half ago at the ripe age of 100. Oh, my goodness. And so he had actually been practicing for 65 <laughs> plus years. And Unheard he, of. Isn't that crazy? It truly is. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, he was walking history. He actually served on the city commission when Martin Luther King was shot in the city of oh, Memphis. So goodness. just the, the history. And uh, I, I got to work with him and then also with Howard Baker. And Howard, as we all know, was chief of staff to Ronald Reagan. Yes. And who was one of the most infamous senators that could cross the lines, right. which we don't see yeah, often today. Not anymore. Nope. Um, and just he, he was a staunch Republican but just a, a wonderful human being and really would always look at things from what is the best position to be in for the people of the world. And uh, so I, I had a lot of great opportunity between the two of them. And then um, my mentor at the time said to me that I had a ton of personality. <laughs> you? Uh, I no. <laughs> and, and thought... There's this new type of career. Baker didn't know what they were going to call it at the time, but he was known as the technology partner and okay. wanted to have someone that would be like a technology associate. And so I said, okay, I think I can do that. And at the time, like HIPAA, high tech were starting to come into, fold, yeah. to, into fold, but not really fully fleshed out, weren't fully implemented and such around the world, or at least within the U.S., excuse me. And um, I thought, okay, this would be interesting. I don't know what it's going to be, but it'll be interesting. And so I started down the path of kind of doing kind of a dual work of, of still practice, but going down this administrative path of huh. helping the firm decide technology law, what we want to do, privacy at the time, although it wasn't really called privacy, and just really what we were going to accomplish in yeah. this space. And uh, and so that kind of led me down what was traditionally the, became the knowledge, knowledge management. management. And um, when I was, I think I was 29, at the time, and I uh, became their chief knowledge management officer, and uh, and did that for about twelve years there, and wow. and loved it, and yeah. and so the Baker Donaldson is one of those firms that lives on innovation. They just absolutely do. And the leadership there at the time before I left between Charlie Tuggle and Ben Adams and Bill Painter and Randall Mashburn and a laundry list of other people that I I, I know I have just forgotten. It, it was one of those situations where Anytime there was a question of how we do something better, faster for the client, how do we impact them? Here, Meredith, take that and just yes. go figure out yeah. how to do that. Um, and that was everything from creating products that we could sell to a client or to, to add in a, as a bundled effect to actual legal services or whether that was figuring out internal efficiencies and developing internal applications or intranets or searches or whatever. <laughs> right. It, 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 was, it was almost like it was... There's very few times in your life that you get to actually define what your role is in the world, uh, in the professional yes. world. It's a very yes. fortunate position to Absolutely. be in. And I, I just, I, I grabbed a hold of that. I, I was I was leery of it at the beginning of, of making that transition, but then just jumped in full force and absolutely have never regretted it for one minute. And there's a lot of hustle that yeah, goes I'm into sure that. that. Is, no question. And a lot of exhausting times <laughs> in life, but um, absolutely loved it. Wow. Yeah. So you now are here at Sherman and Sterling. 
and you are sort of in charge of knowledge management, research and informational services, legal product management, conflicts, governance, all this stuff. How in the world do you go about sort of bringing that together at this point? <laughs> it's a great <laughs> question. question, right? Great question. Uh, probably a 20 minute answer. Um, so a, a little background to that. My role is, is new to Sherman. So okay. my role did actually not exist before I joined in April of 2018. And so I, I credit this to Kim Gardner, who yeah. is our executive director and, and my boss. She she jokingly says this, that she designed this position on a napkin, on a oh, cocktail really? napkin. <laughs> I don't know what cocktail napkin it was, but I like to frame it. And it was looking for a way to break down the silos that impact the client every single day. Whether that be how we work the file or whether that be actually how we interact with the actual client and figuring out what does that look like. Okay. So she designed this and um, sought me out. <laughs> I, I was not looking to leave Baker. It was, it was odd. The recruiter phoned me and said, they have your name. They want to interview you. Can you come in? And so it's one of those things, again, in life where... I had been very comfortable at Baker Donaldson for a very long time and would have loved to have stayed there. It's kind of my home yeah. is the way I have always thought Literally, about it. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah it, exactly. And, um, and, and so we, I interviewed here and, and jumped, really jumped because it was a big jump. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you about the physical jump of that in, okay. in just, just a second. <laughs> the role itself is interesting because it really, I, I, what I have right now is I have kind of four departments of people oh, wow. that, yeah. that, that we've organized and structured. Because when I first joined Sherman, we had some structure, but not a ton of structure. Okay. And when, when you have 90 plus people reporting in, that's difficult. That's and, and you have to really think through who the people are before you can even think through where the strategy is going to take you. People are so your number one thing when you're thinking of change. It's always people and process and, and the rest of it you can figure out. So I, I spent some time kind of thinking through what this reorganization should look like, and it really comes down to four departments. So the departments that I have, um, I have the, the global the global knowledge and research okay. department, which is all your traditional knowledge management, yeah, research, stuff. information, services, et cetera. Um, I also have global legal project management, which is the budgeting, the pricing, the reporting, the, the fun nitty gritty of the <laughs> right. data that's in, within that. And then also kind of what I dub as the ethics team, which okay. are the NBI, or it's global conflicts records uh, and new business intake. And so it's all the folks that are doing conflicts, anti-money laundering, the, the intake of clients and matters, but right. also the management of our information and the governance of that information. But if you think about those areas, um, and included the, the fourth bucket I have are what we call our professional support lawyers. And if you think about the, the actual areas that sit within that, and you start to break down what each one does, it's bringing on new clients and matters. It's doing the diligence around that. It's setting up scope and budget for that. It's drafting materials and looking for samples. It's collaboration. It's using data for reporting. The, it's the full life cycle of it's the, the matter. Yeah. It's the workflow. Yeah. And so what we had to do was to organize, but then to break the silos. And one of the first things that I wanted to think through here was to actually structure and get really solid global directors in place that could guide those teams of people and do it in a, in a unique way. And so um, I already had two. I wanted to make certain that they were elevated in the right way. The first one is Judy Berman, who is my global director for all of that ethics area. Okay. And she's a former lawyer. And, right. so, and most of her staff are, are lawyers because right. they have to be conflicts mm -hmm. attorneys and otherwise. And her just 
gusto to attack process and data and governance and everything in our new regulatory world that we live in with privacy law and everything going on is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but then also then that leads to the second one, second individual I had on staff when I joined, which was Anthony Widdop. And Anthony sits in London. He's the global director for LPM. Okay. And Anthony comes from consulting world. Perfect. And uh, exactly, yeah, he's an MBA makes, guy. Yes. Yes. And, <laughs> it's and, so necessary and, now. Exactly. And so it's about building that team out and understanding the nitty gritty of how we can price and understanding scope and and almost positioning that team as your pricing people. Think about it as where is if I'm lawyer Susie Q, I'm not really the best person suited to argue about a bill or to argue about that's out of scope. We're really not going to do that. We can sign a new agreement. I just want to practice law. That's what I went to law school for. Oh, so you can deal with my bad guy over here, Anthony and his team. They're going to (laughs) negotiate price with you. And and they can be rough. They can have that conversation. So it's, it's a unique way to think about that. And then the last leader that I brought in in January is Glenn LaForce. Okay. So Glenn was previously with Handshake Adderant. Yes. And, and, and I had known Glenn for a very long time. He and I had been uh, colleagues and friends and worked together at Baker for a long period of time. Um, and I just knew coming from his background, both working within the research world as well as working at, in the knowledge management and intranet and search space and everything for so long, he was going to be the perfect leader for that space. And so it brought him in in January. So it kind of filled out that, that leadership team. The critical component is that they don't work in individuals. They work cross-pollination within the different groups. And we have to cross-pollinate with everyone else. Right. So one of the first initiatives that we kicked off last August was our data initiative. And it's called Sherman Analytics okay. because the tech. Once we got the people and the structure in place, it was now what is our main strategy point? And our main strategy point, yes, we need to modernize a lot of the technology at Sherman, but it's not really about the tech. It's, it's about the, the data. data. Exactly. There's there's so much behind the walls of a law firm now, and it's Correct. like, how do you handle this? How do you deal with it? And they're also in silos as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, what's the approach? What's the thought and the, the philosophy there? I think. Correct. And, 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 and what, so what, how do we attack it? Yes. Because it, it's, uh, it's almost like you have multiple burning house situations mm. with data. And where do you attack first? Because you, could, you can't do everything at one time, and even though you'd love to. So the way that we have saw through our strategy with this is as we modernized the organization from a technology standpoint, we had to create a, a kind of a work stream set of processes that we were going to attack. Um, and so we created this cross kind of functional team called the Sherman Analytics team, which has tons of people from our GTS or technology team, tons from the client value team, tons from HR, tons from professional development, tons from marketing and BD. It's a cross-functional team because it's not just about a piece. It's not just about like a document management system. It's about how do we govern all of that data appropriately where we can report out on it to clients, where we can use that to extract key components so that we can build a strategy around the file in the future. So creating a culture for collaboration and breaking down of the silos is probably the number one thing that we had to do here at Sherman. But Sherman is, is, is similar to Baker in some ways and very different to Baker in a number of ways. Baker is um, mainly a regional firm. But size-wise, the same. Yeah. Um, architecture, very similar. Okay. <laughs> very similar. Right. You, anytime you have 20-plus offices, you've got issues. Yes. Um, and how you cross 
cross data and stuff like that. So a lot of the experience that I had gained from being at Baker Donaldson was able to translate over, um, but some not. And, and that's okay. I, I, had, I get to learn from everyone on a day-to-day basis. But we focus now with change, looking at it from that people and process perspective first and then the technology and data. Okay, to so make that comes certain, second. It does. Yeah, yeah. It has to because in a, a great example actually is this week we just instituted some governance around documents. And it wasn't about the technology change. It was about a human change. The technology is coming in May. We needed to make a governance shift right now that has nothing to do with tech. Right. Um, now, in order to get to that process change, we had six months of people preparation to do that. Is that training? What does that involve? Is that training people and helping them understand how something's going to... Okay. A lot of it's conversation. Okay. Um, making them comfortable. Thinking through your sponsors. Thinking about the impact to the day-to-day practice. And each group is very different in how they practice. How do matters come in? How does data get classified? What matters to that group is very different than what matters to someone else. And I'll give you a great example. Um, In capital markets, a lot of times we're representing the issuer. It's not about a client yet. (laughs) We don't know that. Um, On the litigation side, we know that. Um, And and then let's take it from the classification world. In M&A, we need to secure that highly. Litigation, it's public record. So every group works very differently because the practice is very differently. Um, So we've done a lot of listening, um, a lot of understanding, and then a lot of let's navigate, I, I, I would say, through the... The world we're in, um, but never let a good crisis go to waste <laughs> because GDPR, CCPA, regulatory shifts are easy to yeah. sell to lawyers. <laughs> they are Be- because they all understand that, and and they understand that the world we're in is very different. And uh, so it's it's been an interesting journey. I'm really excited because I I get to work with some of the best individuals possible. One of the reasons I chose to join Sherman, actually the main reason I chose to join Sherman is because when I went through the interviewing process, I, I ended up meeting about 50 people. Okay, wow. It was a lot. 50. It was a lot. <laughs> That's huge. Uh, it was a lot, I won't lie. And I met some of the, the most intelligent people that I've ever had the chance to work with. Um, and, and Kim Gardner is one of those individuals, but also like Karen Miglianico, who is over so much of our, our finance space. But I, I still remember the probably the most pivotal conversation I had was with Lawrence Baxter, who's our okay. CTO. And I remember in that conversation, he, he referenced something and I was like, oh, you're talking about a data lake. And he, his eyeballs get huge and my eyeballs get huge because there's very few people I've ever talked that geeky with <laughs> and just felt like I just found my work soulmate right. is, well, the best, is the best statement I can make. And, and I jokingly call him my work spouse now because <laughs> we spend an inordinate amount of time together. But no, I mean, he, it's just um, I remember that conversation very, very well because I thought, oh, man. If I get to work with someone that that, that gets it, that's yes. you know, that's cloud first, that wants to innovate in this way, that th- that sees the vision the same way that I do, that means you can grow really rapidly and you can really do a ton of change. Yeah, I- um, and so that was that was probably that pivotal moment of okay, I'm going to make this leap. Then I had to, of course, convince my husband. <laughs> I'm sure that must have been a crazy change. So you made that. You said you had to do a jump of some sort, right? So, um, so we had my husband and I had actually left Memphis about nine years ago. So, so even though if you were to ever research me, it looks like okay. I, I still lived in Memphis, and and I was in Memphis a lot. 
But my husband went in-house to R.J. Reynolds, the tobacco okay. company. And so we ended up moving to Winston-Salem, North Carolina ah, yes. in 2010, 2011. And we loved it there. It was a great, great place. Very great similar in size to Memphis, that kind of thing. But, you know, for us to move to New York, my husband was going to have to leave a job of 11 years that he very much loved. And, <laughs> and we also had a four-year-old at the oh, time. Yeah. So he and I have never been shy about moving, but moving with a four-year-old is a very different process. <laughs> what about the barbecue? The barbecue between North Carolina versus uh, Memphis. Well, no yeah. barbecue is better than my father's. <laughs> okay. And I okay. have to say that. <laughs> yes. I'm sure you do. No, no barbecue and no moonshine are better than my father's. There we go. There we go. Awesome. Hey, so you mentioned Kim Gardner. I got I to gotta yes. call her out because she. I do feel like she's tremendously progressive. She brought she me is. in here probably four years ago to do, starting to do talks on um, exponential technology. So I talked with a firm here. I talked with a firm in London. And I love the way that she started to approach the way that firms should operate. And I think um, it's obviously come to fruition with you bringing you here um, because you are considered, quite honestly, the preeminent thought leader in uh, legal technology. I mean, you're all over the place when it comes to like ILTA, so the International Legal Technology Association, which I believe you were previously a president. I was. I served on, I I served as a volunteer for over a decade. I ran, I I was VP of the conferences for two years and then I served on the board of directors for six years and two of those as as president. Okay. Mm Um, have you seen this thing, Legal Geek? Have you kept I your eye have. on that? What are your, what are your thoughts? <laughs> so they just had it in London. They did just have it in London. And they had it a few months they ago They just introduced here in it here in, yes. in the U.S. in June. Yes, yes. Did you have an opportunity to go to either one I of I did not. Okay. I, I was out of town when it was here in New York, and I haven't been in London okay. this week. I've got to be in London uh, later on. I, I think it's interesting. Some of the information um, that I've seen come out of it has been very raw, yes. uh, as, is what I will say. Uh, but I think with any kind of conference that you run, there's going to be good and bad. And I learned that from being the VP of conferences for ILTA. <laughs> right there, because you can't control how well a speaker is going to go over. Right. And either, even though someone may be the, the most eminent thought leader on something and a beautiful writer, don't put them on a stage. Yes. You can't control how they're going to actually interplay with that. There were some fantastic speakers. I saw uh, Chris Grant from Barclays, who's, who's a good colleague of mine. Okay. And, um, and, and just he and a couple of other people were doing like, like a skit around change and, and some <laughs> other things, which I think is unique. No, I, I think it's interesting. I, I think it. Um, we've yet to see what it's really going to become. That's what I will say. I think okay. it's almost too early to make that judgment call. The issue with the London space, with conferences in particular, is it's very oversaturated, okay. especially with conferences around legal wow. technology. Didn't know that. I, I know that from my time as in a, London, in particular. In, or Lon- in, Lo- in London, in particular, oh, wow. London okay. has a ton of conferences. I, I learned this being president of ILTA because you, you're looking for growth and how you're going to accomplish that. Um, and you know, ILTA has a conference in London, and it, it's 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 very specifically placed in a month where it's not an oversaturated month. Okay. So it, it's it's, pr- it's purposeful, <laughs> okay. and and uh, so you know, London's an interesting market. London is uh, in some cases further ahead than the U.S. in the legal technology space, or as they would say, law tech. Yes. Um, and in some cases, not. I think it depends on on who you speak with, and what you classify as legal technology. <laughs> That's a great and, and, point. Yeah, and, and in my opinion, just because something is AI doesn't mean it's great legal technology and it doesn't mean it's actually going to serve a need that I actually have. Um, and, and evaluation always has to happen around that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what are the biggest changes that you've seen over the last five years in the legal tech space as well as within what you've been working on? Oh my, the biggest changes, uh, the wall 
that separated the world from being on-premises or going to the cloud has crumbled. And if you were to actually do analysis as to when that occurred, 2016 is actually the year that that, it it is. It is. Um, And I I have data to actually back that. (laughs) You're a mathematician, yes, that makes sense. I'm a data person. (laughs) uh, And I like to make decisions based upon information, if at all possible. So one of the things that we did here at Sherman right after I had joined is we were making a decision to actually move and change um, document management systems. Okay. But in doing that, we wanted to determine could we go on cloud, is, is, or excuse me, in the cloud and not, and not on premises, and not even do a hybrid model. And, and the first thing, the first statement was, oh, our clients are going to prevent that. I said, okay, let's find out if that's for sure. So we actually ended up using an AI tool, Kira, to yeah. analyze uh, all of our general counsel guidelines. Wow. And we bucketized it from 2016 prior and 2016 post. And that, the reason why we chose 2016 was that was the year that Goldman Sachs chose to move into the cloud. So the big banks made that leap at that time. And so what you saw in the 2016 prior and then the 2017 post is that 2016 prior, prohibit, prohibit, prohibit. 2017, just give me notice. I don't care. And that's really it. So we literally found no client that would prohibit it. We did talk to a few of the big banks to make certain that they were comfortable with this before we were to make a jump of that nature. And uh, it was very interesting. That's for (laughs) sure. But that was the pivotal year. So that's one of the biggest changes. Another big change I see is the pace. The pace is daunting. And that's honestly where so many people are becoming just exhausted with the, with the pace. Every day, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, I get at least an email a day, either from a new vendor or from a partner saying, have we seen X? And so one of the things at Sherman that even before I joined, Kim had actually started this illegal tech kind of strategy yes. group to kind of monitor the market. We wanted to bring more organization and more structure to that. So we actually pivoted some of the people that are on some of the cross-functional teams to actually beat that's their day job now is to focus on that market shift and to focus on the legal tech because it is there's 1800 tools on market today. Wow. Today. And again, doesn't mean the tools are great. Doesn't mean they actually do what they say right. or even uh, to, to support anything. It's all AI. It's, <laughs> I know. In what way? Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and so we had to bring some structure to that because that pace is just so daunting. We had to understand what we could implement, what we could not, where we actually needed it. And, and so that, that change has, that pace of that change is, is something that didn't exist, I would say, five years ago. It's now just so dominant in, in the cycle. The other thing, the, the kind of the third big thing I will say is you're actually now starting to see some tools that are truly exceptional and really? really thought through. And I, I could list you my top five, but I won't do that. I'll give you maybe one or two. Let's see. Okay. Um, so what I find is when the tool actually serves a, a true need that is going to remove something that is incredibly difficult or daunting or a task that a firm cannot actually bill for any longer, that's huge. That's absolutely. absolutely huge. When it does it, in a way that is also extremely accurate, that's even better. And so where years ago we saw a ton of great tools that may actually serve a purpose, their accuracy 
was not fully there. Okay. And you have to you have to do that mix of that. So I would say in today's market, there are more and more tools that are getting to that threshold of Fantastic. I can't just bring something to market. I have to bring something to market that's actually good. <laughs> Can you imagine? Shocker, <laughs> shocker. But uh, there are some there are some really exceptional ones out there. The ones that excite me the most are probably the most unexpected, but they're the ones that give me the the power of my data. Okay. That extrapolate things out of my data. So the tool Analytics. the tool may actually say it's doing one thing. Uh, like I'll, I'll give you a quick example. The tool may say it's going to do automated time entry. Okay. I don't actually. That's great. Yeah. I don't care about that. What I care about is how it's actually scanning everything that we do to extrapolate the data around all of our matters, so that we could do it for pricing and for strategy in the future. Brilliant. So, so it's great that it does one, right. but two is more powerful. Major bonus yeah. inside. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. So, one of the last questions I have for you, I'm just kind of curious, is uh, your firm, the firm here, as well as all the other like global large law firms, um, are they starting to work a lot more with startups? Are you seeing that? You're seeing a lot more design thinking that's actually happening organically inside firms, or is that still sort of on the outskirts? Uh, um, within the firms themselves, together with, with other firms, or together with clients, or all uh, of the above? All of the above. Okay. All of the above is the answer. <laughs> so you're seeing it. So what you're starting to see, not from every firm, I'm okay. not going to pretend that it's that, from a lot of big firms now you're starting to see a pressure that has not existed prior. So mid-tier firms, like my prior firm, felt that pressure the immediate after 2008 of better, faster, cheaper. You had to do that. Big global firms didn't feel that until the past two years. So if you were to break down what we do as any law firm, and you think about the, the actual work in the finance area, that work has become completely kind of fee capped globally, starting in Asia and working your way back from there. Litigation is now starting to see that yes. pressure. Corporate, a little, little bit, bit, but not as much as the first two. Okay. So what ends up happening is that the, you have all these groups that have to have to use services, have to change. So now you have firms thinking about how do we do that? So you have a lot of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship. So what you're starting to see are, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of like uh, Fuse and like incubators and stuff. Yes. So there are some firms that have gone down that path. There are some firms that have spun off subsidiaries to, to do that. And to be honest with you, that's the best way logically for a law firm to, to actually Why is deal. That? Because law firms are not built for R&D. If you think about a structure of a law firm in particular within the right. U.S., it's a partnership. Ah. So yeah. it's not built to actually funnel money into a venture capital group. It's just not. Oh, yeah. And so you have to kind of spin that off in a, in a unique way. And so you'll see firms that are spinning off subsidiaries to actually run kind of incubators and other things like that. Where we have to be careful is creating products that we think another law firm is going to build. No one's going to want to buy my product. Right. I'm a, I'm a competing law firm. <laughs> yes. um, and it's similar when you start thinking about some of the clients. And There are a number of clients that are doing incubators and, and different components like that. So we have to be careful. At Sherman, there's the question is always buy, build, or partner. And we are definitely not a technology group. That's not who we are. We're lawyers. We're the talent. Let us bring that talent. That's who we are. Um, so we lean towards buying where necessary, okay. but partnering. Perfect. And so we have a number of partnerships now with startups, with some incubators that we just don't talk about. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> in, in, in a lot of different groups, because that's our that's our conservative approach to some of them. Uh, we, we don't want to kind of expand too far into that space until we know where we want to fit in that space. But we're lucky enough that the firm really sees that as kind of a wave of the future and, and helping us get there. Brilliant. 
Thank you so much, Meredith. Really appreciate your time here. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. The Hearing. As ever, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again, and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.